Israelites were slaves in Egypt, right? God brought a deliverer, Moses, to set them free. Jesus. And how did he do it? How did God set the people free? With the plagues. Plagues. Not a peculiar way to free your people. Plagues. So, Kaylee, what are the ten plagues in order? The first one is the Nile River turned into blood. The second one is frogs. The third one is gnats. The fourth one is flies. The fifth one is dead livestock. The sixth one is boils. The seventh is hail. The sixth is locusts. Eight is locusts. Nine is darkness. Ten is the firstborn died. Good job. Excellent job, Kaylee. Thank you for helping us out with the sermon today. Kids can go <laughs> or whatever Karen and Laura want to do. Sarah's working today. She did make it to work, which is nice. I almost didn't make it here. Anybody else get stuck today? Yes, you can. I got stuck. So let's open up our Bibles to Exodus 12. This is the Passover story. Now, as we know, there are tons of, and you guys, if you want, you know, feel free to stay with the kids. That's totally up to you if you want to stay or go. Oh, the window? Yeah, yeah, totally. Thank you, Steve, for saying something. It's like helping a brother out and let him know that his pants are unzipped or something like that. It's like, you want somebody to tell you those things. So thank you for letting me know that I was an obscured blur. Or the hate, maybe, uh, maybe I should be there. No. Okay. That was Moses after the mountain. So this is, uh, this is Moses about to lead the people out. And there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies, as we know, that point to the Messiah and point to Jesus. The whole point of Israel existing in the first place was that God chose a people to be his own so that through them he could bring the Messiah, right? So that Jesus could eventually come. That's why he created Israel in the first place. That's why he had a chosen people. And the whole focal point of the Jewish faith is Moses. This was really the beginning of the Jewish faith in a lot of ways. It's after this came the law. And so this is really the focal point of the Jewish faith. And the focal point of that is the exodus from Israel, specifically. God brought them out in such a glorious and amazing way. And the focal point of the exodus is the Passover. And so in a lot of ways, the Passover is the focus of really the whole Old Testament. God had them rearrange their entire calendar around the Passover. It was right at the beginning of the year, and we'll read that in a second. And so it was one of the, if not the most important things that happened in the Old Testament is the Passover. And God did that in order to set up something that people would continually do and continually tell their children about and continually remember because it is a story about Jesus. It points to Jesus. It prophetically looks at Jesus. So there's tons of Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, about the cross, but we're going to focus in on what I think is the focal point and the most important one, um, and it's the one that Jesus focused on himself, which we'll also read. 
I'm going to read Exodus 12, and I'm going to read a ton of it. Nothing wrong with reading a long Bible story, right? So go ahead and follow along, Exodus 12, and I'm just going to read. Um, this is God telling them about the Passover. It's, so it's right before that final plague. And the final plague was what? Death of the firstborn. Death of the firstborn. Not just the firstborn of Egypt. This is very, very important. The death of every firstborn. And there is only one way to save that firstborn, which is what he talks about here. Okay, so uh, Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So he's rearranging the whole calendar based on this event that's happening, which they still observe, by the way. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So in other words, if you've got small families, join together and share lambs. That makes it easier to afford as well. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight together. Then they shall take some blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. So that's the thing right above the door and each side of the door of the houses, on the outside of the house. Um, two doorposts and lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, so bread without yeast, and bitter herbs they shall eat. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head, um, its head with its legs, and inner, its inner parts. Interesting. Not how I would normally roast an animal. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. That's why you should share with your neighbors. You're supposed to eat the entire animal. So if your family can't handle a whole lamb, mine can. But if yours can't, share with other people because you can't leave a scrap for the next day. Uh, so we're at uh, verse 10. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So this is a holy meal, a holy ritual that they are, uh, God is establishing here. It's a commandment. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both male and beast, or both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses entirely. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Whoa, pretty extreme. 
On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your, um, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, eat no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. So he's really hammering this. He's making sure Moses and Aaron and Micah are very, very clear on how important this is. Whether he's a sojourner or native in the land, interesting. So even the refugee who is going through Israel can't eat yeast this week of Passover, or he's kicked out. Whoa. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lambs. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning. Okay? So they had, had to have blood on the door and they had to stay in the house. Had to go through the door, stay there. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over our houses of all the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went on and did all as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. Okay, I need to take a drink of water. That was a lot of reading. Steve. Ooh, wait, 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 hang on. We, we have a mic. It's on. Here. Say your question into this. Hooray! I'm excited. Um, I know you always know so much about these words and how they use them, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking there might be an ex explanation. How come whenever they talk about the Israelites, they say the children of Israel, and the children, they always mm -hmm. call them children. Yep. Uh, two reasons, because God's trying to, you can just put it near you, and next time somebody talks, you can pass it over. Um, uh, they are the children of God, so God likes to keep reminding them that they're children and that he's their father. But also, they were literally the children of Israel, Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And then the 12 sons of Israel were what became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they are quite literally the children of Israel. Yeah. And then the country was named after the guy. Although much of what we refer to as Israel in the Old Testament was actually not the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of Judah. But that's a whole other. Um, so at this point, they were called mostly Israelites. From Moses afterwards, they're called Hebrews, pr primarily. And then during the Babylonian captivity, they start being called Jews because they're from the land of Judah. Um, great question. Okay, so we got the Passover story. Anybody else has a question? Go ahead and you know, raise your hand. Um, Passover story uh, begins with people of Israel. They're enslaved in Egypt. Okay, They've been slaves for a very, very long time. Slavery is bad. You don't want to be a slave. And so... Right away, 
part of the analogy of God delivering Israel and saving them from slavery is the fact that we, all people, are in slavery to sin. Those are the exact words Paul uses. We are in bondage to sin, right? We couldn't free ourselves under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant's about to be established through Moses in a few years. And so under that covenant, we're all in bondage to sin. And we were before we became Christians, too. And so the, the analogy here of slavery is a very specific one that God made a point of making for all time to the great cost of the actual people of Israel because um, they had to go through the slavery. But they also got to go through the deliverance, so that's cool. Um, so that's already pointing to Jesus. The old covenant exists to point to the new covenant and to prove to us that we can't do it on our own because nobody could do the old covenant. Nobody could fulfill it. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Um, so the children of Israel were told to sacrifice a lamb. The most common metaphor for Jesus in the New Testament is lamb of God. Okay, so again, the, the whole idea of the Passover lamb is to point to the Messiah, to point to Jesus. You know, we could literally spend hours looking at the Passover and all the connections that it has to Jesus. Uh, we're not going to spend quite two hours there. Um, the Passover lamb had to be a firstborn without spot or blemish, meaning physical, like, defect. But spiritually, that represents perfection, which is what they're trying to do. You, you kill a perfect lamb. It represents sinlessness because it covers the sin of the people. And so later on, when they have the tabernacle in the temple, the Passover lamb is killed for the sins of the people. And so obviously Jesus was the firstborn. He was without sin. John one twenty nine says, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, um, and David read part of this um, from the Matthew this morning, but in John he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Who? What does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. That's his purpose. Atonement. He's going to be, so John is prophesying right there, this is the ultimate Passover sacrifice coming down to get baptized. Which is why John says, I don't want to baptize you. You should baptize me, man. Like, you got this backwards. Um, so the Passover lamb was supposed to be chosen five days before the sacrifice. Now, does anybody know where the Passover lambs were raised? Passover lambs were raised in a little town outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. All the Passover lambs were raised in Bethlehem. And they were brought into Jerusalem five days prior to the Passover. And, of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? We all know that. He was born in the exact place where the Passover lambs were born. And who did the angels announce this to? The shepherds. Maybe the exact shepherds that were raising Passover lambs. It doesn't say because we don't know. But Bethlehem was famous for being the place where they raised these particular lambs. And so I think that, that connection is just so cool, right? So Jesus is born right away as the Passover lamb. And that was, of course, prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be born in Bethlehem. Um, and five days before Passover, the week Jesus died, was Palm Sunday. And the Passover lambs were brought in five days before Passover, and Jesus came into the town five days before Passover. So the same day that all the Passover lambs were being brought into Jerusalem, Jesus came into Jerusalem as well to die, just like they did. Amazing. Um, on the day of Passover, the, the priest blew the horn at 3 p.m. 
which was what they called the ninth hour, and that signified um, that the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. That was to let all the people know, okay, the sacrifice has been made. Um, And we read in the death narratives of Jesus that he was crucified at that same time. And it specifically says in the ninth hour, same exact time, while he was being crucified, is when he says, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he died. So he died literally when the Passover lamb was being killed. Again, exact same time. So God thought this out ahead of time, right? It's important to think of prophecy not as, oh, let's make this true by doing something now. Let's make sure Jesus dies at 3 o'clock because that'll connect with the Passover and that'll be the... No, no, no. 1,200 years before, God's like, this is what I'm going to do. And so we're going to set this thing up so that it points to him. That's, That's how prophecy works. And so all of these things were set up to point to um, the Messiah and to point to Jesus. Uh, The blood of the lamb was to be sprinkled on the Hebrew homes with a hyssop branch, it specifically says, a hyssop branch. And again, in the story, when Jesus said, I thirst, he remembers this. When Jesus says, I thirst, the soldier grabs a sponge, dips it in vinegar, gross. And what is the stick made of? A hyssop branch. And he lifts it up to Jesus on the cross. So again, all, even the wood <laughs> that is used. I mean, like, very, very specific. And, it, you know, why mention that it's a hyssop branch that holds a sponge to lift to Jesus' lips? Well, to say, like, another Passover thing, another Passover thing, another Passover thing. This is the whole point of Passover is to point to Jesus. So they celebrate this for 1,200 years. And then Jesus changes it so that we continue to celebrate it at the Last Supper. But we'll get to that in a minute. I'm getting ahead of myself. I often do. You may. If you take the mic, you may ask a quick question. Steve. We'll, we'll get used to it. We'll get used to it. Of course it's important. I'm just confused where it says, um, where did the Israelites actually live? The land of Goshen? Because it said that there was not a house without someone dead in Egypt. So proximity, where are the Israelites compared to the Egyptians when this Well, they're all happened? in the same place. The Israelites are in like a ghetto. Okay. Like a giant ghetto in Goshen, most likely. Okay, so it's really close, like all... Oh, yeah, very, very close. And so when when all the times when Moses and Aaron go up to Pharaoh, like it's not a super far journey. Um, They're they're in the ghetto, probably near the water, I would imagine, because that's the water they needed to make the bricks. Um, And so they're in big ghettos. Some, of course, are house slaves. And so they, they live out in the Egyptian neighborhoods, as servants to the Egyptians. So there were the brick builders and there were the house slaves and there's both. You know? So like Miriam was a house slave because she helped raise Moses in the Pharaoh's daughter's house. So she was a house slave. Her mom became at least a house slave at that point to nurse Moses and that sort of thing. So it really just depends on the situation. But the proximity is they're all together in the same place. And now when it says Egypt, we don't know for sure if it means the whole of the Egyptian kingdom or like the capital of Egypt where the story takes place. I presume it's everywhere because when the Nile turns to blood, they checked way up river and it was blood. So I presume it was the whole kingdom, but it doesn't specifically say that. Um, good question. Uh, so the Egyptians, this is interesting, the Egyptians worshipped lambs as a deity. They worshipped lambs. So it was illegal to kill a lamb without specific permission. 
And so by God telling the children of Israel, you have to kill a lamb, he's asking them to break the law to their masters who get to kill them if they want. That's a lot to ask. That's risky. And then he says, put the blood on the outside of your door so everybody sees it, right? This is a very public declaration. It's a very public thing that God is asking them to do. And it doesn't specifically say why he makes them take that much of a risk and why he asks that much of him. But my thought is that um, we know from later that Israel had become very idolatrous, very pagan. Some people worshipped God, but they also worshipped the Egyptian gods. They worshipped the gods of their master. They worshipped the gods of whatever area they were in. So they, they did idolatry as well. And so this was a way for them to make a choice and a break from the Hebrew faith and to make a break from that idolatry and say, nope, I'm breaking the laws of your religion right now by killing this lamb, and I'm thrown up in the door so that everybody can see it. I am not you anymore. I am separate, because that's what God wanted them to be. He wanted them to be separate. And so he makes them do that, which is risky. Okay? But he says, look, if you don't do this, you're dead. The firstborn, not every single person, but the firstborn. But a household might have several firstborn, mom, dad, one of the kids. If, 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 if the wife had died, it doesn't say anything about age. And also it doesn't say, like, if the first wife died and there's a second wife, I assume that their first kid is of another firstborn because it's her first child. So, I mean, we're talking about a lot of folks, right? Um, a lot of folks. And so it had to be very visible, um, I think, so that they could free themselves, start to free themselves from this Egyptian idolatry. Now, God told them, don't bring any idols with you, but of course some of them did, right? And God has to deal with that. And then they make another one in the desert, which is nuts. Um, so using the blood of the Passover lamb was the only thing that would protect the people from this plague. It wasn't because they were Israelites. The plague was going to affect everybody, irrespective of persons. It doesn't matter that they were children of Israel, who their parents were, the faith of their parents, how many times they worshipped Yahweh, or anything like that. Nothing mattered. You had to obey, period. Only the blood of the lamb would save you. And he's very specific here. You put the blood on the lamb, you go through that door, and once you go through that Passover door, you do not leave. You stay inside. If you go in and come out, dead. I've been an Israelite forever. We're super pedigreed and, and awesome. No blood on the door, dead. Okay? The blood of the lamb is the only way you can be saved. The only way. Again, what's the obvious connection there? The blood of Jesus is the only way we can be saved. Steve? So the Pharaoh, if he, if he didn't die, that means either his brother or sister died. Right. right. So that's breaking right in the heart of Pharaoh. Yep. His firstborn son died, though. His son. Who, the next Pharaoh. And he had to lose a brother or a sister. Right. Unless they already had died. I assume, I, I assume that... Um, but if he had an older sister, she wouldn't have been Pharaoh, not at that time. And so it could be that she had an old, he had an older brother that had already passed away, which is why he's Pharaoh now. Or it could be he had an older sister who then died at the plague. Okay? And so th this was really, really key. You absolutely had to obey. God's, God gives no loopholes and no outs for this. You had to obey. You had to put the blood of the lamb on your door. And you had to do it just the way that God said. Is there any indication that the, that the Egyptians 
um, I don't, I doubt it. Um, that would be an interesting question. If an Egyptian household decided to obey God and put the blood on their door, would that count? It, it specifically is talking about Israelites here when it says that. Um, but we know God makes a lot of exceptions for foreign people all the time. I mean, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, a lot of them are not Jewish, right? And so I think that probably if, if an honestly faithful, like someone who actually was like, I fear God now. Look at all these plagues. It was our God stink. Yours is the one. And they did it. I, I, they'd probably be spared, but I don't know for sure. Um, another good question. I think the, the answer would be you risk it and put it on the door of your Egyptian masters or you run and get into another house. Um, now remember at this point, I think most of Egypt wanted the Israelites gone. Even Pharaoh would have wanted them gone, but God hardened his heart multiple times because he wanted to display his glory. He's writing a story here. And it's an important story. And for that story to really be what God wants it to be, Pharaoh needs to have his heart hard a little bit more. <laughs> so he really sticks it to him. He really sticks it to the Egyptians. Now, they've deserved it. They've kept the Israelites as slaves, for, as slaves for a really long time. So they deserve it. <laughs> but God does, God does stick it to him. Um, so, you know, obviously this is, the analogy is obvious. The only way for us to escape God's judgment on that last day is through the blood of Christ, right? That's the only way. There's no other way. Um, doesn't matter how good we are, who our parents were, how often we went to church, any of that kind of stuff. We will be judged based solely on have we been cleansed by the blood of Jesus or not. That's it. That's the only way you can get in. And just like you had to walk through the Passover door and then stay inside, you had to walk through the door, Jesus said, John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, they will be saved. So this stuff is all throughout, all throughout. Um, and I'm going to keep going with the Passover story by talking about the feast, but I'm going to do it by reading from Matthew. So Matthew 26. So it talks a lot about the specifics of the feast. And over time, um, the Passover feast became a very specific ritual with specific things that you did, specific prayers, um, and it was one of the things that the Jews really kept. Um, when Ezra came back, um, he was the priest at the time, after the exile, they reinstituted the Passover, and it hadn't been done for a very long time in Israel. And so it was a really huge celebration. Because um, they didn't do it while they were in captivity, at least not publicly. Um, okay, so start with, the verse, start with verse 17, Matthew 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, so unleavened bread, that's the Passover, right? It's the beginning of Passover. Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city of a certain man and say to him, my, the teacher, the teacher, says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another, is it I, Lord, is it I? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. 
The Son of Man goes, and it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay, so the Passover feast is one of the most important parts of Passover. And they're celebrating the Passover feast now. And we could get into a lot of the specific here. They, they, they're possibly celebrating it a day early. Or it could be that over this long period of time, the traditions have gotten a little bit different. And they kind of celebrate it at the beginning and at the end. Um, we don't know for sure. Because the next day was Passover. And so this is the evening. And by Jewish reckoning, the day begins with evening and ends when the sun falls the following day. So this is the same day that Jesus was crucified. Great, because he's crucified the following daylight period of time. Okay, so they're eating the Passover, and the, the bread has to be unleavened, no yeast. Uh, yeast represents sin, right? Jesus many times in the New Testament talks about the leaven of the Pharisees, and even one little bit of leaven messes up the whole lump. So uh, yeast is representative of sin. And so bread without yeast represents God, sinlessness, purity, holiness, that sort of thing. So in the, the Passover feast, as it came about in this time, in the Passover feast, there are three pieces of bread traditionally, okay? Three big flat pieces of unleavened bread in the liturgy. Um, of course, we think of this as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But originally, they didn't think of it that way because they didn't have a real concept of the Trinity. But there's three pieces of bread. And you take the middle piece and you take it out. And the middle piece is called the afikomen, which means the coming one. Okay, the middle piece of bread is called the coming one, the afikomen. You take it out, you break it, you wrap it up in a white cloth, and you go bury it or hide it somewhere in the house. Okay? Um, so again, Jesus, he was killed, wrapped in a white cloth, buried. Just like this. So this is, the bread is a specific foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Jesus, and it's called the coming one, the afikomen. Um, after... Uh, towards the end of the meal or at the end of the meal, depending on who's doing it, the afikomen is found by children. The children go out and search for it. Okay? And the kids find it and bring it back. And then they break it up into small pieces and they pass it out to everybody to eat. And so that's the moment that Jesus institutes communion here. That's when he makes a break with this liturgy that they've followed more or less for 1,200 years with a couple of gaps here and there. 1,200 years is a super long time, right? Super long time. We've been a country for... 240? This is 1,200 years. And they've done it more or less the same way for 1,200 years. And so now, this afikomen, the coming one, it's been broken, wrapped, buried, or hidden, and then they bring it back. And Jesus takes it, breaks it up in little pieces. Everything's normal. Everything's normal, right? And then he says, this is my body, which is given for you. So that had never been said. He's breaking the liturgy. He's messing up church. What's going on? He's going rogue. Well, what he's saying isn't just that this piece of bread in my fingers is my body or represents my body. He's saying this, 
the afikomen, this bread that you've celebrated for 1,200 years, that represents my body, which is given for you. Because I am the coming one. I don't think they understood right away. I think they're just like, okay, that was different. That's why all of them, all the disciples record this. Partly, I think, because it just stuck in their minds. It was so different. And so um, then, of course, he takes the cup. And does anybody know what the cup? All, all, there are four cups um, of wine, although technically your cup never runs dry. There's a lot of wine to be had at a paschal seder. Um, and does anyone know what the third cup is called? Uh, uh, cup of affliction is one of the names. Yes, cup of affliction, which of course relates to the passion of Jesus, right? And the other name is the Yeshua cup. The Yeshua cup. Now, the word Yeshua means salvation or redemption. So this is a cup of salvation is what it literally was. Um, and of course, Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua. And so Jesus takes this cup, and it was common to give a prayer of thanks. They had specific ones, but you could technically give any sort of prayer of thanks and grace. And so Jesus does that. He gives thanks for the cup. But then he says something. Again, he breaks the liturgy. He messes it up. He does something different. And he says, this cup is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This cup is my blood, my blood of the new covenant. And so again, Jesus is breaking with tradition. He's saying, this cup, this thing you've celebrated forever, this both affliction and salvation with the two names that seem opposed to each other, right? This cup of affliction and salvation, this is and has always been, has always represented my blood, which is poured out for you for the new covenant. So just as the original Passover was instituted at the beginning of, and really the foundation for the old covenant, Jesus is saying, but it was really pointing to the new covenant all along. And this cup of salvation is me. Not just because it has the same name as me, but because my blood, the blood of the true Passover lamb, the true lamb of God, is what needs to be appropriated to you in order for you to be saved, to receive salvation. Are you with me? I know this is a little complicated. So, um, so Jesus prays, prays that prayer. And so those, the, the whole Passover points to Jesus. The whole meal points to Jesus. But Jesus himself points out two specific things to say, this is me, and it always has been me. The bread um, and the wine. And then he changes the feast so that now it's not only for the children of Israel to remember how God saved them way back in the day and how he's their God now because of that. It's for all of God's children, including us, to remember how Jesus saved us at the cross and how God is now our God forever. But unlike the Passover lambs, which were just holdovers, you know, um, Jesus is obviously the eternal Passover lamb. And does anybody have any questions on that? There's a lot there. I think it's super cool. Just the idea that 1,200 years before, God's like, all right, we're going to do something big to institute for my people, for them to remember forever, and all of that is pointed to Jesus. Just every little thing about it is pointed to Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus knew it, he said it, um, and he fulfilled it in that way. And then we, even though I think most of us are Gentiles, I guess I'm not totally sure. Um, I know my family is Gentiles. Um, we get to participate in this. Now, not, not that communion is the Passover Seder. They're different. But it's the same tradition. It's the same ritual. It has the same heritage. And so when we celebrate communion, we're taking part 
of something that started in slavery. And we're remembering that we were in slavery too, to our own sins. And that that blood of Jesus is what brings us out of that slavery. Yes, John. Um, Do you mind grabbing the mic? Or Joel, can you pass well, it? Sure, well, Thanks. I'm going to be on $50,000 No problem. <laughs> So, of course, when Matthew wrote this, okay, all of the Jews were convinced, okay, of this, all, putting together all this imagery and everything back for, whatever, over a thousand years. Um, question I have is, what really were, do you, do you think Jews were expecting, you know, for the Messiah to appear as? I mean, if they don't, aren't able to kind of put together this, this imagery that's very yep. powerful, okay? How are they, yeah. they going to explain it for over a thousand years? The blood on the doorpost, or uh, the that's a killing of a lamb. And that's a really good question. And certainly, they knew where the the sheep came from, from yep. Bethlehem. All that, all of yep. that imagery too. That's a great question. I think some understood what the Messiah was more or less supposed to do, and the concept of the sacrifice and all that kind of stuff. Some of them probably got it, you know, um, but most of them seemed not to. Um, and the thing is, our theology is always highly susceptible to our condition in life. If our condition in life is everything seems to be going wrong and everything's suffering, we tend to have a theology that's a little more downer and a little more God's kind of far off there or maybe doesn't care about us or something like that, right? Or if our theology is really political one way or another, then our views of things will be changed by that. And so at this time, they are being occupied by Rome. And so most thought, as Judas did, that the Messiah was come to set them free, literally like, like Moses did, um, to overthrow the Romans, to kick them out of their land, and to reinstitute their land, um, and then take up the throne of David, presumably forever, as now their king in the land. So most of them didn't get the fact that we're talking about a spiritual salvation, the eternal salvation is a spiritual one, right? The one through Jesus. Not the literal salvation like Moses did. So Mo Moses was a foreshadowing of Christ, but there's also obviously a lot of differences. Because Moses was just a guy, um, he made mistakes, that sort of thing. Um, Jesus was not. Does that sort of answer it? So it seems like most of them didn't expect the Messiah to do what he did. They thought he'd be, they thought he'd be king and be king yeah. forever. The idea of the Messiah coming as humble as Jesus did crossed very few minds mm -hmm. because of who they were and they saw themselves as setting up the kingdom again, the kingdom of David. That was like the goal. That was the dream. And now they're occupied, so we need saving. And what's interesting is nobody in Israel got the fact that the star came to mark the birth of the Messiah. It doesn't say anybody did. The people who did were the wise men, the heretics and idolaters and snake charmers over in Persia, the Parsian Empire. They're the ones who are like, oh, I know what this star means because I know what these prophecies are because these people used to live here and now we study them because their God was powerful. Now, how come they could see it and the Israelites couldn't? Because they're so bound up in their life and what they see that they're not looking for it. So they saw a star and they're like, whatever. Isn't that crazy? Persian and so... Mm -hmm. It's a different concept, too, you know. Yeah. I mean, the, the law, I mean, their enemies, supposedly. 
Yep. And the, 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 the Parsian Empire in the day was, was huge, and they were the exact, you know, complete enemies of Romans. And so they had to go in enemy territory, and I preached about that over, over Christmas. Um, and so it was, it's very curious to me that they saw it and the Jews didn't. And well, that's, even, I think even, that's because they weren't. today, though, you know, I, I mean, I just dropped Masumi off at the airport. She's going to Japan. Uh -huh. her mother, but yeah, Osaka. But anyhow, um, if it had been yesterday, there would have been people walking to the synagogue we pass every time, mm -hmm. you know. And, and uh, um, it, it, they're not offering any animals as sacrifice. So, mm -hmm. so they better be really good or something. They better not sin. But I don't know what hope they have. Because <coughs> they, 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 they pretty well dismissed any, uh, the red carpet that was laid out for them. The right. little red carpet, you know, that were Jesus right. dying for them, you know, right. his bloodshed. Okay, they've they've missed all that, and so it's. I I don't understand that whole that whole lot of, <laughs> of of creation of the yeah, seven billion on the earth. I do not understand how they're wired, you know, to, to miss that. Yep, and it's and it's really sad because you want you would want to see all the Jews go to heaven, you know, but we're not going to see that clearly, and that's. That's what they were so concerned about preaching to the Jews in the first century. And Matthew wrote his whole gospel to try to get the Jews to believe. Because if they don't, they're not in. If you don't enter through the Passover door, you don't get saved, period. Even Israelites who didn't put the blood on the door go through, stay there. <laughs> they're, they're not saved. And so that's, that's true with the Jews the first time. And it's true the second time, too, which is too bad. Um, th there are some people that think that first covenant, you know, would still be in effect. But like John said, can anyone fulfill the old covenant? The answer is no. Nobody can. Nobody can do it. And the sacrifice of the lambs was to atone for the fact that you couldn't do it. And now that doesn't happen since 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple. Um, those sacrifices don't take place anymore. And so my answer is, I don't know. What does God do with the chosen people? I, I don't know. It, the Bible says we are the chosen people now. And we have taken over the Passover celebration as communion now. And so we are his children. We are his people. Not to the exclusion necessarily of Israel, because it says we're grafted into the vine. It's when you make a vine, join part of the vine, right? Um, but it does say no one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ, period. about you mm -hmm. any any um, he is the greatest wonderful bridge between Christians and Jews His, the man's heart just overflows with love for everybody mm -hmm. and he's um, <clears throat> is this guy you think he's um, not getting to heaven because I mean isn't he going in under the uh, the Jewish no my under, my understanding is no wow. because of what Jesus specifically says I'm the door only if you come through me can you be saved. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so Jesus made that clear many times. He was the only way. And so if any way doesn't involve Jesus, and that includes a Christian way. I went to church all my life. Didn't I prophesy in your name and do many miracles in your name and all this kind of stuff? Jesus says, I never knew you, so you're not in. Well, how about um, the so Jews before through, he came? Only through Jesus himself. The Jews before he came went to the place of the dead, Sheol, after they died. And that's where Jesus went when he died. He went there to preach to them. And church tradition says everyone believed and followed Jesus with three exceptions. 
Judas, King Herod, and somebody else died. Um, uh, that, that, is, that is one thought, and Hebrews, Hebrews hints to that. Hebrews hints to that. Um, there are other people who believe that the Jews somehow, in the blink between death and judgment, get Jesus to say, hey, I am the chosen one. I am your Messiah. Uh, the Bible doesn't say anything like that, so I don't tend to think that's true. Um, yeah? Have you ever heard... Because, again, sorry, again, even the Israelites that were in Egypt, their firstborn still died. Every one of them died if they were not in the door with the blood, period. You had to be in. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm a firstborn. I'm a trouble. Have you ever heard the teaching of um, the thousand-year reign? So I know you're not going to like this, but whatever. The thousand-year reign, that we come to salvation is found in Christ alone. Mm -hmm. So after we are saved, then some of those verses in the separating the sheep and the goats and the judgment period that then when they say, you know, whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me, this this enters into a different period. This is now the post-salvation time of this reign because God's heart is to take all that he can. Mm-hmm. Kind of the whole theory of um, walking out literally the revelation. Mm-hmm. Anything to... The, I mean, I know that I, it's all in theory. I think it's all personally. Obviously, this is one man's opinion. Um, I've, I've heard that and read, read multiple things on that, and it's very convoluted. And the source is someone who desperately wants every Jew ever to be right. in heaven. That's the source. And so, in my opinion, they pull out verses, they twist things, and they made something up that's not in the Bible at all. Okay. I mean, it's certainly not directly in the Bible. Now, if that happens, hooray! Right. Praise God, right? Yeah. But it, there's nothing in here to indicate it is. On, on the contrary, Jesus says, Pharisees, you're not getting in unless. You guys, you're not getting in unless. It's very, very clear. And Paul is very, very clear. If, if, if the Jews were getting in anyway, why spend any time preaching to them? Right. Jesus spent his entire ministry preaching to the Jews except a few times with the Samaritans who were cousins of the Jews. He wouldn't have done that. He would have said, let's go to Ephesus now. Let's go to Athens now because they're all in. No, 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 no. He went to his own people because he wanted his own children in. But some say no. That's sad, but it's true. Um, and the early church, they would have been like, sweet, Ezekiel's already in. Let's go find some Gentiles so they can get in. No, no, no. They focused on them. A lot of people think God had Nero sack Israel and break up Jerusalem to get the Christians to finally get out there and be missionaries like they were supposed to because a lot of them weren't doing it. And so why do all of that? Why say, why say I'm the only way unless you happen to be born a Jew? Why say that so many times? Um, and, and why, and, and why, why preach to the Jews? Why, why do any of that? So clearly, Jesus and Paul and all the apostles felt these Jewish brothers of mine have to believe in Jesus to be saved. They clearly felt that. Um, and, and I think that too. I think it's sad that anybody would not accept Jesus Christ. Regardless of Jew Gentile. But especially when they just love God so much and they mm-hmm. And know, so some people think that there will be some God sort of some, some sort of grace, like life. maybe as they take their last breath, God will have some sort of grace on them. That's nowhere in the Bible, but if you want to think that's true, I'm fine with it. 
because grace is a good thing. Okay. So I'm not saying it's heresy to think that that might be true. Um, it's just not in the Bible, so I don't teach it to be true. Does that make sense? And uh, my official theological understanding of the end times and millennial reign and all that kind of stuff is that if there is a rapture, I would like to be a part of it. That's the extent of my theology on that stuff. Another, another one, too. Um, Muslims are sons of Abraham, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they're, and, they and should be connected. Moses' wife was a Midianite, and Midian was one of the sons of Abraham, too. Abraham had a bunch of kids, by the way. And Midian was one of his sons. By his last wife or second to last wife, he had four at one time. And um, so... Moses married a cousin, but it wasn't, she wasn't an Israelite. You know, the Moabites were cousins of the Israelites. There's a lot of cousins. A lot of people think that all the children of Ishmael are all the Arabs, but a lot of people we would call Arabs, some of them are children of Ishmael. They take their religious heritage from Ishmael, but a lot of them are children of other children of Abraham. Children of Abraham's other kids. Isaac was the line that the Hebrews followed, um, but there was lots of other stuff. And then tribes left, and tribes broke up, and tribes did this and that. And eventually Israel collapsed entirely, and only Judah was a kingdom. And eventually they got taken hostage to Babylon. So that whole story, though, points to Jesus. This whole book points to Jesus. The cross is the focal point of the entire human story. Because this is primarily a human story. God doesn't tell us all the stuff that he did without us. He doesn't tell us about the creation of the angels. He doesn't tell us about any other planets he may have created he has, that have life on them. He doesn't tell us anything other than our story as it relates to him. And the focal point of our story is that he sent Jesus for us so that we could be saved forever and join the family. And that is good news. Amen? So we're going to, I think we're going to do communion every week during Lent. And I'll remind us of this next week as we do it. Because communion is, is actually a pretty important thing. Not only do we remember the death and sacrifice of Jesus, but we're, we're joining a long tradition of following God that is much bigger than just, I guess we drink some like grape juice and eat a cracker once in a while and remember that Jesus died. Um, there's a lot more. And so bring your questions for next week. Um, we're, we're over time, so I want to let everybody go and eat some of Durrani's yummy Indian food upstairs. Father God, we thank you for the fact that you came, the fact that you save your people, and that that is your desire and your heart. Thank you that you saved us. We pray that you would help us be impassioned and on fire even more to see that everybody around us is saved too. To see that everybody comes under the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because that's our desire. We want to see all our friends, our families, our neighbors, random people, people we hate. We want to see all of them walk through that Passover door and be saved by the blood of the Lamb. And so help us to pray for that, Lord, more fervently. Some of us pray very fervently for it now, but I pray that you would give us the passion to pray even more fervently and to be willing to obey and to do our part. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.